Is there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, here's a guy who definitely doesn't have too much aluminum in his baby bottle. He has no baby bottle because uh, he's Dr. Rashid Batar. <laughs> Welcome, my friend. Hey, Robert. How are you? Good, good. I just posited that Dr. Offit must have had too much aluminum in his baby bottle because he thinks aluminum is great for you and it's really important for good, healthy fetal development. Well, this must have been something you covered in the last hour because I'm not dealing with it. No, I, but, but all you need to know is Offit aluminum. Oh, Offit. Yes. So I'll say that's like, uh, th- that's like, uh, th- okay, never mind. You don't need this anymore. That, the absurdity factor is about the highest it can be when I hear that name. So anything absurd exactly. coming out, total sense is logical with it. Exactly. Now, one, one, another thing that's kind of interesting and maybe, maybe not absurd, but certainly for those who say evidence-based medicine, peer review is everything, uh, must be frightened about this, uh, paper resurfacing in the new scientist. Uh, was originally from August uh, 30th of 2005, and it's a, a quote of the headline says, most scientific papers are probably wrong. Now, obviously, he's not saying definitively that all of them are wrong, but, I mean, it's it's pretty nerve-wracking if you really rely on what we call the peer-reviewed evidence, the literature that's peer-reviewed and for your decisions to use or not use something, to try something, and they're saying there's a 50% chance that if you just randomly choose a paper, it's going to be wrong. Well, that's not surprising at all because we've covered actually on the show a couple of years back. Remember the physician, the research, I think he was an anesthesiologist who had been uh, very instrumental in publishing, I think, 13 different papers. And then his papers were then further referenced by over 100 other papers. And they found that everything had been fabricated. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he's right now serving jail time or something. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. I mean, and, and in this case... Um, this guy, this Greek researcher says this. Let me know what you think of this. He says, we should accept that most research findings will be refuted. Some will be replicated and validated. And the replication process is actually more important than the first discovery. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, in fact, when you talk about the Cochrane review process, which is the process that's used to determine the validity of research, um, you will find that most things don't live up to the standard of the Cochrane Review. And then there's there's other aspects, too, because, you know, what was the basis of the team that started the research? If, if there's already a bias that established prior to the, um, the um, study itself, in other words, somebody's already got a thought process in their mind that they want to do something in a very specific way, they can actually create... Using that bias, they can actually create the outcome of the study, um, and that in itself goes counter to what the whole purpose behind doing a peer-reviewed, you know, supposedly evidence-based medicine, which is devi- defined as a multi-centered, crossover, double-blind, placebo-controlled type study. It really goes counter to what supposedly the agenda is, which is to establish what the truth is. Right. If you already have a bias formed in your own mind, and then you go out to set. Uh, you, you set forth to try to establish that as the mm-hmm. fact, 
you know, it's, it's almost like you've already got a, you've already determined before you even start the process what the outcome's going to be. But so, if they acknowledge this, Dr. Batar, in research papers, how the fallacy of research papers, it's interesting to say that, um, they also acknowledge, if you will, something that you don't hear about in the mainstream media all that often. For instance, when they attack you, you know, like the Office of the World attack you, and they're saying you're not using evidence-based, we've talked about evidence-based medicine, uh, but this Solomon Snyder, who's a senior editor at the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, he's a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins, and he says, at least he says, that most working scientists understand the limitations of public, published research. He says this, when I read the literature, I'm not reading it to find proof like a textbook. I'm reading to get ideas. So even if something yeah. is wrong with the paper, if they have the kernel of a novel idea, that's something to think about. So that's different than the way it's presented when they try to bash you over the head. You know, like it's exactly. gospel. They present it, you're absolutely right. They present it as if it's the gospel truth, it's the Bible itself or something such as that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this is one of the things that goes back, and I've said this many, many times in conferences and lectures and symposiums when I've presented, and I know you've heard me say this in person at the Advanced Medicine Seminars, that a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover multi-centered evidence-based trial is no more science than calling a pile of bricks mm -hmm. a house. So if you look at facts, facts are like bricks. Facts are used to build science, just like bricks are used to build a house, but collecting facts is not building a house. That, that That's like having a pile of bricks and then saying, calling it a house. So you have to first take the bricks, i.e. the facts that you collect, and then you have to build a science out of it. You have to build a house out of it. But but call, doing a double-blind placebo controls uh, crossover multi-center trial and calling that science is like taking it's like establishing a bunch of bricks and calling it a house. It's, it's idiocy. Yeah, but then again, when you're, again, I, t I talk about you because you have been the brunt of some attacks over the years because you went and said, you know, your son who was injured from a vaccine into what was, you know, called this autism spectrum and you reversed it despite the fact that they said, oh no, it can't be done. And then you've helped many others since then. They've attacked you because, well, you didn't get it from some peer reviewed journal. Maybe you did. Maybe you got an idea like this neuroscientist who says, we don't take the peer reviewed literature as gospel, but they might give us ideas. I did take some of the research that was out there, and I did use that as uh, for, for, for basis. But as a basis, but, but just like this guy said, you, you took it as a basis for, let's see, let's apply this, make it applicable in some real-life scenario. Right, and that's, that's, uh, that's a true statement. That's how I think how a good clinician or a researcher should actually look at it. But I also knew that there were certain things that were already published that were categorically wrong, they were erroneous, that were... Uh, fictitious at best, and, and when you, the reason I need this is because what was being stated in these papers and what I was actually observing in my clinic, in my real live petri dish, if you will, mm -hmm. in my laboratory, if you will, was contradictory to what was supposedly published. But as an example of something that I did learn that helped me, uh, a paper that was done that Boyd Haley was actually part of, uh, talked, it was published in the International Journal of Toxicology that showed that children that had been damaged by vaccines, children that had autism spectrum, they found that those children had lower levels of mercury in their hair, and neurotypic, normally developing children had four times the higher level of mercury compared to their autistic peer group. And then they also found that the more severe the autism, the lesser, the lesser amount of mercury in the hair. But that would be supposedly counterintuitive to what you and I believe. 
But in actuality, that's exactly what the truth is because hair is a dead uh, tissue. It's an excrement, right? So the whole reason that you see lower levels of mercury in hair, specifically in that vector, remember there's many different vectors, the reason you see less less mercury in the hair is because it's being retained in the body. It's not coming out. That's the whole reason that children are having problems. The neurotypic children, their pathways of excretion are intact, so they're actually expelling more mercury, which actually shows that mercury is the problem. We all have it. It's the ones that have a genetic predisposition for the inability to excrete that manifests this problem that we call autism. Mm-hmm. It will exactly. And I think, you know, why I wanted to bring this up with you today is for the, for the practical reason of how do you apply information that somehow some treat as the gospel, but even those, or especially those on the inside that don't often, you don't hear them because they're not the media pundits per se, saying, listen, right. back off of this idea that we're writing gospel because it's peer reviewed. Then many of the peer reviewed journals eventually refute, retract, or others publish and say it wasn't duplicatable, that which is, has a lot of merit, of course, but even that which isn't exactly accurate can bring light to something that somebody else will pick up on and move forward. But again, the clinical application for me is so much more important. Well, that's what, that's the whole point. That the, When I saw that study, and you know, again, everybody said, well, mercury is lower in autistic children, so a lot of people in our group would have thrown that study out the window, but it was, again, looking at that study, and seeing that, wait a second, this this makes sense. So there's, you know, why the autistic child has lower level of mercury, but well, lower level of mercury in the hair, which is only showing what we're, that's only picking up what we're actually pulling out of the body. So that's actually an example of utilizing some of this information, this data that is being researched, and then applying it and understanding, getting a hint, and then furthering it, because I'm sure when it was published, that wasn't necessarily their, their agenda. What they weren't, they were trying to establish higher levels of mercury, they saw actually lower levels of mercury, but that indicated when you put it into the context of clinical uh, evidence, you start seeing, okay, there's a physiological reason. These children are not excreting it. That's why there's less level in, of mercury in their hair. And so I think that's what this researcher that you just referenced, whose name now escapes me, uh, what he mentioned that uh, most, when he reads research papers, he reads them to get further ideas. I think that's how we should all read these papers, to get more ideas of what the various possibilities are and to get uh, our thought process is stimulated to come up with better ideas of how to get better outcomes in our patients or whatever the case may be. Right. And the irony, again, here is that if they try to beat you over the head, Dr. Batar, or anybody who's innovative and doing something that's outside the box, let's say, it, uh, for the help of their family members or a patient population, aren't they the ones that are denying this, this truth, this, these facts, that the, the literature is not gospel? Once again, we should say that so many times because the people that are accusing Dr. Batar and others, and I don't think it's as loud as it used to be because some of the things, it, it's there's a lot of blowback on those people now because they're calling everybody denialists who don't you know look at the peer-reviewed literature as gospel, but in fact, those are the people that are denying that science doesn't exist solely in a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, I think that, uh, um, I think that my, in my particular case, and I'm not sure if this is true for everybody, but I haven't been beaten up too much recently. I think that they think that whatever damage they could have done, they've already done, and whatever can't be done, they've just basically given up. I, I, one of my patients actually described me, he said, you're kind of like that, uh, that boxer in Rocky that just got hit and hit and hit, and he wears out his opponent by getting hit so many times. <laughs> the, you know, so, 
maybe that's, I, I don't know if that was a compliment or that was just to show, because I always thought that guy was an idiot to stay in the ring that long. But No, no, but it um, shows how tough you are that you could take a hit and, and, you know, you didn't back down, you didn't give up, you're still standing, and ultimately you beat the opponent. Now, they may have taken some, let's say, blood along the way, but you're regenerating. They're not. They're on the losing end of this long-term battle for health, freedom, and healing liberty. Dr. Batar, my guest every week, my co-host, in fact, every week, I should say, here on Medical Rewind Advanced Medicine. You can go to medicalrewind.com to hear it again and again and again, as well as through our syndicator at GCN and naturalnewsradio.com and many other places. We'll be back and we'll say 97% of the people with cancer had this one procedure. What was it? The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, if you're totally new to this show, you may not be aware that Dr. Rashid Batar wrote a book, international bestseller, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. I'm wondering, Dr. Batara, should you retitle it The Nine Steps to Keep the Dentist Away with this story? Or is that kind of goes without saying in the book? Because there's a story here about 97% of terminally ill cancer patients previously had a particular dental procedure. Yeah, Robert, the reason I wanted to cover this particular story is because it's one of the most uh, common and yet unknown things that people are suffering from. and they. It's just completely unrecognized, not only by the medical profession, but I'm certain by the dental profession, and most certainly by the public at large. And I think just this one little piece of information that we put out today, just this one component by itself, by definition, is going to empower so many people with our motto of the power to heal is, is theirs. And, and mm-hmm. this is a, an example of that. It's so bizarre, it's almost difficult to believe that that's true, but Kevin, uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, we're talking about root canals. Listen, it's bad enough that they put mercury, an amalgam of mercury in your tooth, which can kill it and do any number of things in your body in a a not-so-nice way, and that's an understatement. But then the doctor, somewhere in in the annals of dentistry, a brutal profession, if there ever was one, decide to say, hey, you got a problem with your tooth, an abscess, an infection. I know what we'll do. We'll just clean it out. We'll kill the tooth. We'll destroy the nerve, and we'll leave the tooth in there dead. And it won't be a problem. Nothing can grow there. It's like no unintended consequences could ever happen. And it turns out it's an absolute disaster. Yep, absolutely, Robert. So first thing is that, when they do a root canal, as you said, they pull out basically all the bases of the teeth. Uh, it, it pull out everything from the root. But a lot of times that is left open and forms a cavitation. Mm-hmm. And the cavitation is one problem because there's a subclinical infection. There's an inflammatory cascade that begins. And many times it's not sick enough. The person doesn't get sick enough to actually have the symptoms of being sick. But it's enough to keep a burden on the immune system, a slow uh insidious type of infection that never mounts large enough so that the person feels really sick. But think of it equating it to a uh, accelerator, having you put an accelerator for the car and revving the engine enough to waste gas, but not enough to, you know, having it parked, but not enough to really you realizing that your foot's on the accelerator, revving the engine and, mm-hmm. and burning gas. So 
It's the subclinical infectious process that's one thing. But then the other thing that's really bad with root canals is that virtually all dentists, when they do a root canal, they end up filling the base of the tooth with mercury. And when they fill it up with mercury, that's, that's, they have to have a base for the root canal. They have to, they have to establish a base for it. And with the material that they use for the base of it is amalgam. Now, if you put an amalgam inside a filling, there's outgassing issues that's leaking out at five to nine nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day. That's what you're inhaling. But now when you put the amalgam in the root canal, not only do you have an outgassing issue, but usually the, the root canal will end up having a cap. So preventing the stuff from outgassing per se, so you're not really inhaling it, but it is still there and it's actually not being absorbed directly into the body because the base is all amalgam and that's directly contacting the tissue. And so now it's absorbing into your bloodstream right from the tissue itself. So it, it, it's, uh, it's just unbelievable that something like this is being done to the human body because, remember, mercury is the second most toxic substance on the man, and it is an extremely, extremely potent immunosuppressive agent. So now you're suppressing the immune system on a constant basis. Not, it's not that you've been exposed to something once or twice and then it's in your body. It is constantly hitting your system. It is not leaking out of five to nine nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day. It is directly being infused into your bloodstream on a consistent basis. And so there is no surprise when we see that 97%, it might as well be 100% of mm. people that have had cancer have had a root canal. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And, and what we're saying here, of course, of all the many symptoms associated or, or damage associated with mercury, even at minute low levels, again, I, I look to the homeopathic material medica and see almost no other substance has near the impact on the body and the function of the body and the integrity of the tissue, the epithelial and, and the nerve tissue, etc., as mercury, including links to cancer. And we're going to follow up on this discussion with Dr. Batar here. It's Advanced Medicine. We do this at the beginning of every week together. MedicalRewind.com. You can catch up on hundreds of hours at this point of great healing like nowhere else in broadcast media. So stick around. We've got that and a big old question of the day for Dr. Batar coming up after this break. RobertScottBell.com. Give us a call if you'd like, 866-939-2355. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Yes, we do have Twitter feeds as well. I'm at RS Bell Media. Of course, Dr. Rashid Batar is also at Dr. Batar, B-U-T-T-A-R-D-R, B-U-T-T-A-R. And Superdon is at its Superdon, I-T-S, its Superdon. And we'll blast some things out, links as well through the show, throughout the show as well. And Dr. Batar, we were just referencing the, the root canal link, 97% of all cancers that are terminal. They've had also root canals, and you mentioned the mercury being placed deeply into the tooth that is now dead. Devastating. Any evidence for a cancer link, mercury to cancer link? Absolutely. Um, and this goes from direct observation. Um, I have never seen a cancer patient that did not have mercury toxicity and or uranium toxicity. Uranium is something that pops up in these patients all the time. Also very interesting that I've seen a lot of uranium in children with autism. And uh, uranium 
incidentally, is the most toxic substance known to man, but it is the mercury, uh, clear correlation between mercury and and many of these diseases that cause, of course, an autism, denudation of the neurofibrils, which damages the neurons itself, but it's also very immunosuppressive, and, and we see this with all cancer patients. So the reason, Robert, during the break, we just kind of talked about whether we want to continue with the story a little bit before we go into the next component, is that I want to give people an action item. If you've got a root canal in your mouth, you need to go have it removed. So the natural question is, then what do I do? What do I replace it with? Mm. If, if you pull that root canal, you're going to have a, you're going to have a abscess, not abscess, I'm sorry, a cavitation there, a hole there, and then most dentists won't do anything with it, they'll just leave it there, and then you'll end up developing a cavitation. So you need to go to a dentist that understands what cavitations are and have it not only removed, but then scraped out so that the new layer can develop, of the mucosal lining can develop, as opposed to it forming a, a wall over the top and then forming, uh, covered up hole, which then becomes an abscess and it'll rot away and, and causes bone necrosis and all sorts of other things. So you need to have the root canal removed and then you have to you have somebody that knows how to deal with the root canal, uh, remnants of the root canal, clean it all out, get the debris out, do a, a scraping of it, if you will, what they call um, curatizing the tissue, debriding the tissue, uh, and then letting it close off naturally. That is the point of action for anybody that has a root canal. And if you have a root canal, statistically, out of 100 people, 97 of those 100 people, according to the study, are going to get cancer. So you're doing something tremendous now to mm-hmm. prevent yourself from getting cancer later. Yeah, and that, that doesn't preclude, of course, in follow-up, any residual mercury burden you want to remove. But we've talked about this so many times. I don't want to go into that right now. Read Dr. Batar's book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, please. Uh, now, another cancer story. A press release almost. It's read, it's reading like a press release going out as news. Breast cancer cases may grow by 50% by the year 2030. And this sounds more like an advertisement for more research as opposed to inevitability. And they're claiming, well, it's because women are living longer than ever before. That's why breast cancer is, is going up. Should we then argue that all women should just remove their breasts and we'll eliminate breast cancer altogether? Yeah. It's- this is a this is an interesting story too, but you know when we look at the incidence of cancer in the United States and worldwide, that one out of two and one out of two women, one out of three men will develop cancer sometimes in their life, and this is all before things like Fukushima and some of the other things that happen in our uh, that, that the Western society is being exposed to now. Um, the incidence of breast cancer going up to you know by a fifty percent increase by year two thousand thirty actually seems pretty conservative to me, I think it's going to be higher than that. Yes, but of course, they're arguing for more research into uh, this, but they're not going to go into any toxicological causes, like you've said, mercury. How much are they going to focus on Fukushima radiation, uranium, as you mentioned, much less because one of their treatment modalities or one of their detection modalities, much less treatment, is radiation. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing the... um, it's pretty amazing what the consequences can be, but the fact that they are, again, uh, negating the, the most important essential information here, which is obviously the toxicology component, comes back to what uh, we've talked about before, where you're never going to blame anything that there can be an industry behind. You're always going to blame um, a virus or, or a genetics or something mm-hmm. else that people really can't fight. You're going to blame it in the boogeyman because you can't control the boogeyman. You're not going to, you know, this brings up an interesting story and I got to tell you this. One of mm-hmm. my, one of my, um, 
friends was talking to me, and if Sean hears this, and he'll know I'm talking about him, but it's actually kind of funny. He was telling me about when he was growing up in Ireland, between uh, 12 o'clock midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning, they used to call it the hour of the dead, and um, everybody talked about there was a graveyard, um, and there was all this rumbling that would go on between 12 and 2 in the morning, and they, everybody thought in the local community that that was where the dead people were rustling around, right? They were they were waking up, and, and they were distressed. And uh, he and his brother went out in the middle of the night one night into the into the cemetery, and his dad was, like, really against it. They said, no, you guys don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be going there, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And what they discovered was that there were rabbits in these tunnels underneath that would go running back and forth between 12 and 2, and they would be causing all this rumbling. But everybody thought it was the dead, okay? So um, the the father, they took his father out there, and his father didn't believe him until they saw there was rabbits. He couldn't believe for 60 years of his life. He thought these were dead people that were rumbling, and I thought, you know, when I was a dead person coming back, I'm not going to be sitting in a pipe. There's a lot of things I can think of doing, but not running around in a pipe. Well, the point <laughs> being, the correlation that I'm making here is obviously that, you know, we tend to, we tend to create these, this boogeyman, mm-hmm. because you can't really attack the boogeyman. If somebody said this is a rabbit, uh, it's this rabbit, and nobody's going to worry about it, but the, the whole story is it's dead, they're rambling around. Nobody's going to want to deal with, you know, how do you quantify that? Who's going to go and confront a dead person, you know? Right. Cemetery. Oh, it's, it's a legend. It's myth. It's, you know, how stories become, become tall tales and such. Sure. So this is the same thing that's happening here with, when we start talking about with the cancer aspect. Nobody's looking at the actual truth. It's creating something that nobody can really fight because it's, it's, it's so difficult to fight when you don't really know what the enemy is. But once you know well, it's, 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 it's a war on terror. It's perpetual. It's never ending exactly. because it's never defined. Exactly. And, and so what, the, can- the cancer industry has declared a war on terror. Right, the terror—they call it cancer—but they're precipitating. They're bringing rise to the cancer, much like Ron Paul said that we were precipitating the rise of terrorists by occupying their countries. Right, and a lot of people don't like to hear that because it means we have to take responsibility. It doesn't mean we're responsible for the actions of the terrorists, but we've got to go back to origin point. Of course, that asks people to be adults, which rarely happens in politics. Hey, listen, if you have questions of the day, you can submit them at robertscottbell.com or you can call us and leave a message when we're off the air. But right now, we do, in fact, have a question of the day. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right, this question, it's good timing that you're here with us, Dr. Rashid Bittar, because I thought this is perfect for you. Uh, we recently heard you speak during the Truth About Cancer Summit, and we were quite impressed with your knowledge on the digestive system. I don't know if they were talking about both of us at this point. I don't care. This is important. We were wondering if you might be able to recommend a highly skilled, educated, a proven doctor who can help us with our daughter, okay? She's six years old, has had a history of slow weight gain her entire life. Last year, we discovered... Uh, what did we discover? We discovered that, oh, I lost my, oh, that she's gluten, chicken egg, and casein sensitive and has an overgrowth of gut bacteria, good ba- gut bacteria, but nevertheless still an overgrowth. I think they call it SIBO. Her stool test also revealed that she has fat malabsorption. Blood tests revealed that she has some thyroid antibodies that have developed as well. We have worked with a naturopath for over the past year, and he was very helpful with perform- performing stool tests to help us figure out what's going on. However, his protocol of GAPS diet, probiotics, herbs to kill off the overgrowth of gut bacteria helped her gain some weight, a little bit of praise there, but did nothing to bring her gut overgrowth down. 
we don't have a course of action at this time. We'd really like to find someone who has a proven experience to help us with our daughter. It doesn't matter where they are located. We'll find them. And I'm thinking maybe they can find you, Dr. Batar. What do you think? Well, I don't think they need to necessarily come to us, but it's a very simple issue. Um, I've had at least a dozen children like this that have been brought to me. Some of them were the parents who were uh, ready to start the child on injectable growth hormone. Other times, you know, they were ready to start on other types of uh, really, really serious uh, treatments. There was one, actually, that the, they had met with a surgeon, mm -hmm. and the surgeon was going to do some type of a bone elongation process Ooh. in order to make sure that the child would not have a growth stature delay issue. I mean, these are some extraordinary measures they're talking That's about. That's torturous. Every, it is. And I told every one of these parents, I said, listen, do you want your child to get better, or do you want to, you know, put your child through some type of an extreme uh, treatment that's just going to cause more problems later? I mean, it's obviously a rhetorical question, and sure. the parents responded all the same with, of course, we want to help our child. And I, my suggestion was, then let's check them for metals. Let's get the metals and the persistent organic pollutants. Let's get the toxicities eliminated out of the body. And then, if it doesn't, if you don't see a difference in your child, then let's revisit it. Well, what if, Dr. Bittar, it doesn't, listen, let's stop the what if scenarios. What if, and continue to add infinitum, what if scenarios. Let's just do this thing, and then let's discuss the what if if they don't work. And so far, Robert, I have never had a child yet of every child that we've treated for this type of problem that has not started growing in, in height, in weight. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that they became six foot six or something like that, but they, <laughs> yeah. they, it was a marked difference within three months and six months, you know, failure to thrive with the diagnosis, and all of a sudden they, they're gaining weight. And, I, and by the way, I've had children from Australia, from Europe, um, from Africa. I can't think of anybody from Asia right now, but from uh, mm -hmm. Europe, from Af Africa, from Australia, and from the U.S. with this type of issue. And all of them, not some of them, not most of them, all of them, by just simply addressing heavy metals, Persistent organic pollutants, just getting them, getting the toxicity eliminated first and foremost, boom, their body starts coming back online. Incredible. We've women that couldn't get pregnant. I mean, I've got over 30 women over the last 17, 18 years that couldn't get pregnant, had gone to fertility specialists on Clomid. One of my friends, uh, Ernest, was one of my friends that actually brought me his wife. And they did everything she couldn't get pregnant. We ran them through, again, simple detoxification process. It's not like a one-day or two-day thing. I mean, it's, it's six, you know, four, sure. six months, eight months, and some people, depending on what... But, but what, you're, what you're saying, Dr. Batar, though, is going to the heart of it. Even naturopaths sometimes will overlook it and jump to manage a disease, albeit a little more naturally than their uh, allopathic cousins. But that's still not the same as going to the heart of where the fire started and removing that's it, the exactly mercury. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it, listen, if you if you think it's too much to learn in one show, keep listening. There's lots of them we've talked about. Get Dr. Batar's book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. It's linked up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. You'll never believe what the L.A. Times said. Next. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. Making sense.
sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. All right, before we get to the absurdity of the L.A. Times, I want to remind you to sign up for the webinar that's upcoming. Uh, Dr. Batar is hosting. We've got it linked up. We'll add it to the show notes, and uh, Superdon will blast it out through Twitter and Facebook and all of that. And, uh, Dr. Batar, I, you know, I referenced the, the natural doctors, the naturopaths, that, you know, maybe not going deep enough, following kind of an allopathic thought form like uh, with Annette and her question, which you answered so well. Um, and I know there are perspectives and nuances on this. I want to make sure we, we are communicating clearly. Well, that's one of the things, Robert, I want to make sure, and I appreciate you bringing that up again, because, you know, when we talk about naturopathic medicine or natural medicine or natural healing, or it's not just naturopathic, it can be chiropractic, it can be doctors, medical doctors that have a holistic approach like, like myself. Um, and, you know, people seem to think that our approach is better than the allopathic approach, the conventional approach of using traditional medication. But what I want to accentuate right now is that there's very little difference between both philosophies when a doctor takes a vitamin or a mineral or an herb or some type of natural substance and gives it to counter a symptom, just like an allopathic doctor will take a drug and counteract a symptom. And it's the same thing. And Robert, you actually brought this up at the uh, right before the break, and I'm glad you did because there is, in my world, I know you said maybe to a lesser degree it's not as bad, but in my world it's just as bad because you're using a natural versus a synthetic substance to elicit a response by covering up the symptom. And the problem is that neither group is looking at what caused the problem. It's the causation that we need to be looking at. So if you think you're going to go to a naturopath or a chiropractor or a physician that is naturally, holistically oriented and get something better than you go to get from your traditional uh, physician, be very, very careful because you are mistaking um, a a group of one versus a group of another one without realizing the philosophical difference is virtually nothing except that they're using a synthetic versus a natural substance. You need to find a, uh, a provider, or providers should actually start looking at whether it's conventional or uh, alternative, whether holistic-oriented, chiropractic, mm-hmm. naturopathic, whatever. They should be looking at the symptoms as only something to great their improvement or worsening of the patient, meaning that un- un- deal with the underlying cause. Right. And then if the symptom is decreasing, then you know you're on the right track. And the symptom is not increasing, decreasing, and it's actually increasing, then you know you're on the wrong track. That's the only thing the symptom should be used for, not to cover up using a synthetic versus an alternative. Right. Of course, going back to the heart of where it started, and the symptoms can guide us to that. With a, you know, if you have an experienced, uh, uh, you know, uh, eye ear clinician, you're going to say, okay, that symptom typically indicates this, and you'll see it time and again, just like that report about 97 percent linkage between root canals and terminal cancer. Now, somebody doesn't get it. Groups of people in the media don't get it well, on the a vaccination issue because the L.A. Times, and we've got the link up at the edgytruth.com. Uh, our friend Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. L.A. Times compares children bringing guns to school to children not having vaccines. Really? I'm just shaking you know, my head. I don't even know what to say. It, it, it elicits such a strong response where you're really going to say that to poison a child and to render them susceptible to diseases is the same thing as giving a child a weapon to defend themselves? I know. It's kind of crazy. And, you know, listen, I, I think that, that children can and, and kids and, you know, at a certain point, I know you'll say certain ages, I'm not going to give a, a definitive number, but depending on the child, they can be taught things that are extraordinary in their ability to respect and be good with handguns. I mean, you know, uh, my kids are 4-H club where the kids are working with it at the age of six. They're learning firearm safety. 
and they're safer than you know an adult that would pick up a gun that wouldn't even know what to do with it because they've never been around them. Yeah, I, I, Robert. Here's the other thing too. When you look at the statistics, the number of people that die from guns versus the number of people that die at the hands of their doctors, mm-hmm. it's like nine hundred and forty to one or something like that. Right. But really, a handgun is statistically uh, nine hundred percent safer. Right. So what we, what we should be arguing is for uh, doctors to be prevented from going to schools where the kids are. Yeah. That would protect That's the kids true. more than what the doctors are doing to the kids. Again, you have people like Offit claiming aluminum is good for a developing fetus. I mean, that's there's just absurdities out there. We're just pointing them out from time to time here and actually having a good time doing it with Dr. Rashid Batar. Well, it's one of those things, Robert, it's a good path to go down, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this journey. Absolutely. Everybody sign up for the webinar. We've got it linked up. Get the books. Check it out. We're here at robertscottbell.com. Say thanks to all of, uh, well, our sponsors. Also, I'll be uh, Wednesday the, I don't even know when it is, but I'll be at Hoover's coming up. Not this Wednesday, but next. Anyway, for now, take a break. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to Dr. Batar, and thank you to you, because the power to heal is yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.